Bibles and turn with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, it looks as though we're going to be pretty close to finishing Luke's Gospel at about the three-year mark since we started in December of three years ago. As we come to this point of the narrative where we remember the preceding events, of course, have been the suffering, the death, crucifixion of Jesus, and then His burial. You come to this point of the narrative, there is certainly no abundance of faith to be found. In fact, the disciples are nowhere to be found except for John who is there when Jesus actually died. And even among Jesus' most devoted and His loyal followers, certainly there were a host of questions to be asked. Much in the way of confusion. How can these things happen to the One who is to be the Messiah? This One whom we have believed to be God's Redeemer for us. Much in the way of doubt, no no doubt, as they considered what had been, what had transpired in the last few days. And so today's text, when we come to the account of not actually the resurrection of Jesus, when we get to the story, He has already risen. We don't have an account in the proper sense of the resurrection of Christ, only the the reality that He has, in fact, risen from the dead. So we move from Friday dusk when Jesus was taken from the cross, placed in the, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea with the aid of Nicodemus, to Sunday dawn, even right at before the sun has even come up when it was still dark. So begin reading with me here in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now there were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. When we come to this text and we come to this event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, certainly we come to what is the key point of the gospel message. 
If the message of the gospel is simply about a dying man, we do not have a message of hope. If the message of the gospel ends with Jesus being crucified and buried, we are, as Paul says, most miserable among men. If the message of the gospel ends with Jesus being buried and left there in the grave, we've no message to proclaim. Then Christianity is nothing more than another religious leader who has died, perhaps as a martyr, but nevertheless, he has only died. It's a message that leaves little hope to offer to others if he has only died. Now, don't misunderstand me. I understand the centrality of the cross of Christ. The centrality of the death of Christ. But if that's all that he did, we have no assurance, no certainty that there is any salvation. And so when we come to think about what we are considering today, we see the resurrection. We see a unique event in the Christian message that one who has died, one who has died with the claims that he made as being God himself, as being the Messiah. This one who has died has been raised from the dead we have an event that is so unique that it warrants explanation. And it also warrants a correct interpretation. Now, obviously, this is a biblical truth that is a point of attack for skeptics. For those who oppose the Christian message, those who oppose the Christian gospel... Here's the point of issue, a point of issue, and it's a crucial point. As Paul tells us, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, that not only is our preaching in vain, but not only that, we have no hope. We are still in our sins. So it is a crucial point. So it's not surprising that there are those who rise up as skeptics and say, well, did this event really take place? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And of course, there are a variety of theories that go along with that. There are those who hold, hold to the, the swoon theory that in fact Jesus did not die. He merely went into something of a, of a swoon stage. He was thought to be dead and he recovered and he walked out of the grave. Uh, those who would say that now Jesus' body, which of course the Jews claimed that his body was, was stolen by the disciples and he didn't really rise from the dead. And any number of attacks that are made, did it really happen? But along with that, not only the question of, of its reality, the question of, well, does it really make any difference? Does it matter whether or not this claimed event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place? I'm not going to take the time this morning to give a full-blown apologetic or a defense of <clears throat> excuse me, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
But suffice it to say that it is a reality beyond any doubt to any person who would be a careful student of history. Those who have gone, and I've mentioned this before, those who have approached Christianity with the intent of all and knowing all we have to do is to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and everything about Christianity falls apart. And it does. Disprove the resurrection and there's nothing else that matters about Christianity unless you want to hold to a particular moral teaching. And those who have gone with honest honesty and open hearts to face this truth have come away with the conclusion it is true. If some of you are familiar with the works of, of Josh McDowell, Josh McDowell, and a great an apologist now for the gospel, started out with this intent. He was going to disprove the gospel basically by disproving the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he did all that you can do to look at something that's taken place in distant history and try to verify whether it happened or not. His conclusion was this. It is the most verifiable historical event that you could imagine for something that took place 2,000 years ago. It is even more verifiable than other things that took place 2,000 years ago or further back that we don't have near the evidence for, that we don't question. Henry Morris, uh, I'm sorry, John Morris, wrote a book, Who Removed the Stone? Same thing. All he was trying to do was disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as he studied it, he came away with the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ did in fact take place. Both of these men now followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Christ. What a goodness of God. So it is a reality beyond all doubt to anyone who is a careful student of history. But the importance of it is explained to us in the Scriptures. It is from the Scriptures that we realize how key an event this is. And it is to be proclaimed by God's people. That is our message. We proclaim not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we also proclaim the significance of this resurrection and that we must that must be a part of our gospel message. So with that in mind, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, understanding that that is a central part of the gospel message, we do have something of a task of defending the reality and the importance of this event. So. Although I've titled my message, The Glory of the Gospel, speaking of His resurrection, it's something this morning of a defense of the resurrection, as though it needs defending. I'm not really here to defend it as much as I'm here to proclaim it. And let those who, who would hear, let those who would consider, let those who would see, do what you will with it. But it certainly is quite capable of defending itself. So how do we do that? How do we defend the reality and the importance of Jesus' resurrection? And we do hear, first of all, what we see these ladies did. First of all, we must, as the people of God, revisit the tomb. We must be those who are regularly revisiting that tomb. Here in our text, it was early in the morning, the first day of the week, after the weekly Sabbath. And these women come to, to revisit this tomb. And why are they there? What's brought them back to Jesus' tomb? Actually, if you think about it, there are 
two somewhat conflicted motivations that bring these women back to the tomb of Jesus. First of all, there is the motivation of devotion. The one whom they love. The one whom they have followed. The one to whom they have given their allegiance and their hearts has been crucified. He has been hastily removed from the cross, placed into a tomb. There was some preparation of the body, but it wasn't done adequately. And so as Jesus was placed into the tomb late on Friday afternoon, they were unable to do anything then because of the Sabbath, which again began on Friday at dusk. So they came with love for Jesus to offer proper care for his body. To do what they can and what in their minds should be done for their Lord and their Savior, Jesus Christ. So they come here, first of all, with the motivation of devotion. But I said that there's another motivation that is somewhat conflicting. And that motivation is this. It's doubt. They come full of doubt, don't they? These ladies were not coming to celebrate a resurrection party, were they? These ladies were bringing spices to prepare a dead body. So they're brought there motivated by devotion to Christ, yet also doubt. They did not expect a resurrection. And thus, I think it's safe to say that they visited, they revisited this tomb providentially. It's not just something that happens to happen. It is a kindness of the Lord that he places within their heart. This desire to to come and to do this one more service to Jesus. These who have ministered, these who have stood by until he has died, these who stayed there and observed while Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took the body of Jesus and placed it into this new tomb that had not been used. It's just so they would know where his body was. In their minds, they're returning simply to serve him in his death again one last time. However, in God's providence, in God's providence, they return to see much more, do they not? They return and they encounter far more than they expected. They return in God's providence and they have this glimpse of seeing God's redemptive work continuing. That when Jesus died, it wasn't the end of everything. That there was a resurrection that took place. That the redemptive work of God goes on through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They return to have faith revitalized, doubt and fear extinguished afresh. They come and they find, according to verse 3, 
they returned, they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. That's why they were there. They didn't find it. They returned and they came to an empty tomb and they are there greeted by these angelic beings described in, in Luke's gospel as men, but we understand they had the appearance of men. These angelic beings, they were perplexed about this. In verse 4, Behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were, women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Verse 6, He is not here. It doesn't say, It's not here. It doesn't say, it's a body. The body's not here. He is not here, but He has risen. They returned to that tomb and they found much more than they expected, didn't they? As faith was restored, they came with no great expectation, but are renewed by the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Now, likewise for us, as the people of God, that we need to be those who regularly revisit The tomb in the world of skepticism regarding the gospel message. Folks, let's just go back and be reminded of the fact as we go back and revisit the tomb. We come back not as these did. We can't go there physically. And there's some doubt whether or not we know exactly where Jesus was buried. If you go to Israel now. But we can go based upon the testimony of those who were there. Eyewitness accounts. Let's be those who revisit the reality that the tomb was empty. The tomb is empty. And Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. The women, they return there to find the unexpected. But we return to the tomb. We revisit the reality of an empty tomb to be reminded That we're dealing here with objective and historical truth. And to be strengthened by the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the Christian message is not based upon myth. It's not about folklore. It's not fairy tales. But it is steeped in historical realities. There is, wherever it is, an empty tomb today where Jesus wants Lay. He is risen. So we go back and we revisit the tomb in our minds, revisit the reality, revisit the record that's given to us in the scripture regarding the, the reality that Jesus Christ has, in fact, risen from the dead. It's the central truth of Christian doctrine. It's a key truth to the Christian message that Jesus is risen from the dead. And just as I've mentioned already, Paul's told us, if it's not true, our preaching is false, you're listening to a liar this morning. <laughs> of course, Paul speaking of those who are in his day, he says our speaking is false because Paul speaking as an eyewitness to the risen Christ because Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. Our preaching is false Your faith, what you hope in, is in vain. It has no basis. It has no foundation. And you're still in your sins. Sin hasn't been done away with. If Jesus Christ has only died, but has not been raised, all that means is He's died like anyone else has, 
And there's no evidence that he's died for anything other than his own sin. But when we consider the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection tells us that God was satisfied with his offering. With his offering. But it was not for the sins of himself. Not for any wickedness that he had done. But the, but the sins of his people. Placed upon him. And that death could not lay claim to Christ. Because he had no sin of his own. Step sin. I'm sorry. Death overstepped its bounds. When Jesus died. And Jesus came forth conquering death, defeating death. Again, if it is not true, our preaching is false. Faith is in vain. We're still in our sins. But if it is true, it is a matter of great importance. For all men, for all mankind, the purpose of his resurrection must be considered. Why is it that Jesus has been raised from the dead and no one else has? Why would this one figure in history be raised from the dead and others are not? His claims regarding his own identity warrant attention. In evaluation, what Jesus said of himself, how he identified himself, how he spoke of himself. If he can do this, if he can rise from the dead, then there's war to step back and say, just exactly what kind of a person is this? What did he say? What did he teach about himself? And it's very clear that he taught him, taught that he was Savior of men. He taught that he was God. If Jesus be risen from the dead, then his message, his message calling men to repentance toward God, his message of calling men to faith in him must be Weighed, it must be heeded. So, is the resurrection true? Is it true? Well, we would give a resounding answer, a resounding yes. Jesus is, in fact, reason. If we test the resur- put the test of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the same standard that we would place to any other historical event, it is more certain than much of history that we get is unquestioned. The biblical record regarding his followers for those who would say, well, the disciples of Jesus, they just made this stuff up or this was this was optimism. These people came expecting this thing. And the, the reality is they didn't. That these women came with they were just kind of excitable. They got there and the tomb was empty and they went to the wrong tomb. That's another theory. They went to the wrong tomb and they just came to this conclusion. He must be risen because that's what they wanted to be true. It says that when they got there, they didn't find the body in verse 4. They were perplexed. What's going on here? Where's the body? And that even when they spoke to the disciples of verse 11 of what had taken place, these words appeared to them as nonsense. You know, for those who think there's 
who would hold to any type of a conspiracy theory regarding the disciples and the followers of Jesus and his, what they've done to his body here, they're not, they're not getting a very good picture of these disciples. <laughs> Man, the disciples were looking to plan B. Now what do we do with our lives? This didn't pan out. Now what do we do? So when skeptics, but also when circumstances, when events begin to open the floodgates of unbelief in our own hearts, we need to revisit that tomb, don't we? Folks, it's empty. It's an empty tomb. I remember speaking with Donnie Martin. Y'all have met Donnie. He was pastoring Grace Baptist Church in Hartsville. He was a missionary in Spain some years back. And and he just related to me just a, a period of time that he went through while he was on the mission field. He said, I began to doubt everything. Donnie and I grew up to church. We've been in church together since we were, I was five. He was four. Grew up going to church all through our lives in Middle Tennessee. Neither one of us were truly converted until our teens or later. And he said, I just began, everything just began to have a big question mark. I wasn't sure of anything. Why, why do I believe anything about the Bible and about God and about Jesus? And in the providence of God that uh, he was directed to reading some of Josh McDowell's material, some of his apologetics. And it brought great affirmation, used the Lord and Donnie's heart to confirm those things which he had held to and continues even now as a pastor in Hartsville to hold to. You know, we can come to those points. You know, there's a point where you begin, I went to such a period in my college years. And why do I believe any of this? You know, there are people worshiping other gods in other places. What's so special and unique about Christianity? And Again, in the providence of God, that the Lord dropped me in, while I was in my college years, dropped me into a conservative Southern Baptist church. And I was in a Tennessee Baptist college, university. And what I was getting in the classrooms from the university, I was having encountered and challenged in the Sunday school at the church. Thanks be to God. My pastor, when I would come home from... from college to to my home church in middle tennessee i didn't know this then he told me this years later he said that he would deliberately have me over to shoot me down <laughs> he knew what i was getting and he and he said it in a loving way but he, he just wanted to to confront the questions that he knew that i was struggling with i was but we come back to this reality folks there is an empty tomb You know, when the doubts began to arise, go back to their reality. The tomb is empty. Well, how do I know? Well, how do you know anything? How do you come to a point of believing anything as historically accurate that took place 2,000 years ago? And when you find your answer to that, you run this through the same grid. And there's more evidence of the resurrection of Christ, as I've said. And for many other historical events that we bring, no question. So we revisit that tomb. Second of all, we remember the testimony. The skeptics would have us believe that Jesus became a victim. 
that if the accounts of what we have of Jesus' death and crucifixion, that Jesus simply lost control of the crowd. And perhaps in his idealism that he, he was unable to communicate the message that he needed to communicate, they didn't get it. You know, here he is, he's a revolutionary ahead of his time. People didn't get it, so they killed him. So although he may be an individual of great influence, he really failed. It seems somewhat amazing to us that the clear words of Jesus regarding his rejection and his death and his resurrection never are understood nor grasped by his followers. And what did they say here when they came here? The ladies, they came to the tomb and and the message to them in verse 6, He's not here, He has risen. Remember! Remember how He spoke to you while He was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must. One of the must, they call it, the theologians call it the must of divine necessity. This must take place. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. And listen, the assumption here, listen to the assumption. The assumption is that he could also put the word must in again. It's not put there for brevity's sake. But you could say, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified. And he must rise again on the third day. All three of these must take place. We've considered in going through Luke's gospel. Look back with me in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Three primary occasions that the gospels record to us of Jesus very clearly clearly explaining to his disciples, this is what's going to take place. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and, again, add the word, and must be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and add the word, and must be killed, and must be raised up on the third day. This is Luke's account of the first occasion that Jesus gave this clear teaching, Matthew gives us the account. And when Matthew gives the account in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 and following, you know what happens? Peter rebukes Jesus. Now, so, Lord, this isn't going to happen to you. And then in Luke chapter 9, verse 44 and following. Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Again, this is Luke's account in verse 45. Look what it says. They did not understand that this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. And again, some debate here. Was it concealed actively by a work of God that God was for some reason preventing them from understanding this truth? Or was it simply concealed by their own ignorance and hardness of heart? Their own spiritual darkness? And I think it's the second. 
just the heart of man. They didn't get this. And then in Luke chapter 18, the third occasion. Luke chapter 18, verse 31. He took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. There's another reason for the must. Another reason it must is because the Scripture said it's going to happen. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they've scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day, he will rise again. Verse 34. If you're, if you're just not clear on how clear this message was, look at what Luke says in verse 34. The disciples understood none of these things. The meaning of this statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend. <laughs> now, I don't know if you can get much more clear than that than Luke's tried to do there. They didn't understand it. But it was hidden. They didn't comprehend these things. In verse 34. You know, and I was thinking, what's so hard to understand about that? Well, I think we have to, some degree, put ourselves in the place of these first century Christians, followers of Christ. And the message of a dying Messiah, and that's what they have embraced Jesus. They've embraced Jesus as the Messiah. The promised one from the Old Testament scriptures. They've embraced him as such. And the message of a dying Messiah was so foreign. It was so unthinkable to them. His words must mean something else. He's speaking to us in code. Or he's speaking to us with in a way that we gotta, we got to figure out what this means here. But it surely can't mean what it says at face value. That Jesus, the Messiah, is really going to be handed over to wicked men. And they're going to triumph over Him. He's going to be put to death. Can't mean that. So what does it mean? They didn't figure that out either. So these women, they come with their spices and expecting to... Complete the preparation for Jesus' body. And they're met with this message. And they're instructed, remember. Verse 6. Remember how He spoke to you. And then in verse 8 it says, And they remembered His words. Oh yeah. Something's starting to click in here. They remembered His words. The light is beginning to come on. And we read in John 20 verse 9, earlier it says, As yet they did not understand the Scriptures that He must, there it is, He must rise again from the dead. Understand that. Hadn't, hadn't clicked. This didn't make sense. It's not part of their theological framework. But the lights beginning to come on, and there's some level of realization that what has taken place was expected. And it was, in fact, even foretold, wasn't it? Foretold by Jesus as necessary. This must take place. 
Being handed over to the wicked man is not an option. It must take place. Being put to death at the hands of evil men, it must take place. Rising from the dead, it must take place. So Jesus' death was not a failure. Jesus' death was a requirement. It was a necessity. Jesus' death was a great success because it is by His death, dying in the place of the sins, taking the sins of His own people upon Himself, a great success that secured salvation for many from their sin, for all who believe on Him. He took their sin when He died, died for their sin. That's a success. It's not a failure. And in His death, And his apparent weakness. He indeed became our deliverer, didn't he? It didn't end with death, but it was necessary. You know, it's a challenge of faith. The reality is that God does not often show his hand, does he? He doesn't always just spit it out real clear. What's coming up next? I know that there is much in the Old Testament by way of prophecy that's fulfilled in Jesus. But as I've said before in relating to prophecy, much of prophecy is not clearly understood until after the event. The event takes place and then, ah, that's what that means. See it now. So often, God does not act and move in the ways that we might expect. But even in our text here today, we see that even if He does show His hand, that we're still slow to get it. He told them. He told His disciples. Not only had He told them, if they had carefully considered the reading from the Old Testament Scriptures, it was there as well. How can you read Isaiah 53 and come up with anything other than, there's got to be a death here. It was there. But they still didn't get it. But important foundation for our faith. What has God clearly revealed? What are the things that we can go to Scripture and say, Thus says the Lord. What are the things that we need to go to Scripture and say, remember? Remember the testimony, first of all, in the account of the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection. Folks, remember, He said from the beginning, this is what's going to take place. We're not set back by this. He told us that He must die and then He must rise from the dead. But not only regarding the gospel itself, but just in so many areas of our lives, do we need to remember 
the testimony of Scripture. Think with me, how many spiritual battles have you struggled through because if you stop and evaluate it, you've forgotten God's Word. You've forgotten the truth of Scripture. You've forgotten the testimony. You have any struggles like that? Well, live in the real world like the rest of us do. (laughs) Then how many victories? How many spiritual triumphs have you enjoyed because as you trudged along through a trial and through a difficulty, there was a perhaps a forgotten nugget of biblical truth that's made fresh and it's made living to us in the present struggle. And all of a sudden the struggle is gone because you see the truth behind it. You see the good, gracious, sovereign hand of God. You know, the Spirit of God does that, doesn't He? We'll be struggling along. And, oh man, I... I'm never coming out of this. And then what does he do? He'll take a verse. Maybe we've read it a thousand times. And all of a sudden that verse becomes life to us. Man, I didn't know that verse was in the Bible. (laughs) I didn't know. The Lord is my shepherd. I've never read that before. (laughs) And all of a sudden it becomes becomes life to us. We remember the testimony. Remember the testimony and our struggles and our trials and our spiritual battles. And and we are in a spiritual warfare. I don't want to minimize that. That we are to remember the words that God has spoken to us in His Scripture. Remembering as the children of God that the trials pass through, first of all, the grid of divine approval. That there's nothing that comes upon us except that first God permits it. God allows it. And that we can even say God ordains it. Things are not just happening by chance. It's not the world out in control and and people controlling all the circumstances. Everything that comes upon us, it comes through the grid of divine approval. Also remembering that our sufferings in this world and this life are to be expected. Not to be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you find yourself in. This morning in Sunday school, I was with the children and we were talking. We've been going through the Beatitudes. And the last of the Beatitudes is blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For there's the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus goes on. He continues, says, blessed are you when men insult you, when they persecute you and they falsely say things about you. Now, what in the world am I doing going and poisoning the mind of our little, young, little, innocent children telling me all these things about persecution and insults and suffering? Because that's what Jesus tells us. And I don't want my kids deceived into the fallacy of thinking they're going to coast through life in this world if they're going to follow Jesus Christ. Expect it. 
And Jesus goes on to say, and I told him this morning, and we started out talking about heaven. <laughs> so let's just start with heaven before we get this persecution thing. Because what does he say? He says, Rejoice and be very glad, exceedingly glad. The King James says, Rejoice and be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. Here's how you endure the trials of this life. You look into heaven. You look into something far better than what you're experiencing now. Our hope is not in this world. Neither is our joy. Great is your reward in heaven, but also so they persecuted the, the prophets who were before you. This is the way God's people, those who have been faithful and marked as the people of God, have always endured persecution. So it puts you in good company. And to understand that as we go through the trials that we experience in our life, that these should not be a surprise. Folks, it's part of living as pilgrims in a fallen world. You know, there is some truth to that old, that old song. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord, what will I do? Remembering the truth, the reality of Romans 8, 28. You ever have to go back to that one? How long have you, how long have you known that verse? That it's God causing all things to work together for good for those who love Him to have been called according to His purpose. God causes all things. <laughs> to remember that everything is used by God for our good. Everything. See, the problem that I go through is that I can think of some circumstances that I can leave out of that all things. God, there can't be any good in this. Here's the truth. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and that have been called according to His purpose. But also remembering the truth that trials come upon us as discipline. Hebrews tells us much of it in Hebrews chapter 12. And it is a mark of sonship that we endure trials. It is the the sign of a loving Father who is for us. God is for us. He is not against us. When I discipline my children, it is not because I have turned against them. It is because I am for them. And I want to instill righteousness in their hearts and in their lives. And when God brings trials to our lives and they're used as discipline is because God is for us and He wants to bring righteousness and holiness and strip us of the love that we have for this world and to fill our hearts with a love for heaven and for Him. And that He be sufficient. Take what you will, God. But give me yourself. That's where He wants to bring us. Remember the testimony regarding the gospel. These things that Jesus endured were prophesied long before. But folks, remember the testimony regarding the trials and the circumstances you find yourself in this day. It's not by chance. It's not by accident. And finally, and finally, report the truth. These women, they come... To the tomb. They 
have this encounter and they go and they report their experience. Even though initially, verse 11, these words appeared to them, the disciples, as nonsense and they would not believe them. But something happens. They reported the truth. It was regarded as nonsensical, but Peter goes for a walk. Or maybe actually, Peter goes for a run, doesn't he? His early morning run. And he goes to see for himself. And he comes away convinced. He looks in the tomb and he sees the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus. And there's enough there to convince him. And based upon what he sees there and the testimony he has received from these women, something's happened here. Something great happening. It says in verse 12, it says, He went away to his home marveling at what had happened. Kind of wonder at this point what exactly he thought had happened. But he's marveling, isn't he? At what he has seen. The degree of understanding is unclear. But he has reason to believe in the extraordinary here. The testimony of the women regarding the empty tomb, it was motivation for Peter to go to witness for himself for him to marvel at what he sees, what he considers. And that is likewise our task in regard to the gospel message, in regard to the message of the heart of it, which is Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. Our task is one of proclaiming the gospel. Our task is one of report the truth. Say what is true. Speak of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Speak of His resurrection. Report the truth. Proclaim the gospel. And then let the gospel do its work. It is the gospel that is what? The power of God unto salvation. Let the gospel loose. But folks, you've got to open your mouth. We've got to speak. We've got to report the truth and believe in the power of the gospel. Believe that is by men and hearing of their relationship with God, their fallenness before God, their need of a Redeemer, their need of Christ, and then hearing the story of Jesus who has died and has been raised from the dead for their sins. It doesn't make sense to a natural mind, but it certainly does to one who's been renewed by the Spirit of God. There's life. There's hope. And they will, some... Embrace it. You did. Are you so smart? Is that why you embrace the gospel? It's the grace of God, folks. And the grace of God is the gospel message goes forth to those who hear God in His sovereignty. Some hear the message of the gospel unto salvation. That's how it happened for us. We heard the message of the gospel unto salvation. I have finally, not recently, but in recent years, <laughs> but I finally have become convinced that the power of the gospel 
is not in my ability to communicate it. It is in the gospel message itself. The focus is not upon the messenger. The focus is the message. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel of telling men that they are separated and alienated from God. The gospel of telling men that they are dead in their trespasses and sin. The gospel of telling men that the only Redeemer, the only way of salvation is through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ died as He died to pay for the sins of men. And that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. Let that gospel go forth. Let it loose. Just speak the truth and and let God do what He will in the hearts of men. That's it, folks. Report the truth. The power's in the gospel. Let it loose. <laughs> Say it. Talk to people. Tell them of the gospel. I know it's the gospel entails much more than just the specifics of, of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. I know it, and it's much more than that. You know, Paul makes it very clear to the, to the saints at Rome in Romans chapter chapter two that he speaks that he speaks of his gospel. His gospel is regarding the judgment of God upon men. That's the gospel message, part of it. It's the downside of it, but you'll never embrace the the upside of it. You'll never embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Your only hope of heaven until you first of all you've seen your need of it and the fact that you're standing. Before a just and a holy and a righteous God who will damn your soul. So the gospel has two sides. There's the negative. But there's the positive. The gospel first of all exposes our need. But then it reveals to us the provision that God has made through Jesus Christ. So proclaim it. Report the truth. How is it? How is it that men and women come to Christ? It's by hearing the gospel. We don't speak, they don't hear. Report the truth. Is it true? I mean, what's the matter with us, folks? And the reality is that we can expect that there are going to be more people who reject the message than receive it. That's the reality. But let's, let's not let our, our fear or our insecurity of being rejected or being spat upon or being looked down upon, hinder us from the joy of being the means that God uses to bring men and women into the kingdom. Just face it. Just, you just might as well go out there hard-faced, your mind made up. Most people are going to reject it, but some are going to respond. That's who I'm looking for. And I can't tell who they are. But it's, it's the gospel. The glory of the gospel. Jesus is risen. That's a glorious gospel, folks. He didn't just die. He rose. And that's not all. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's not over yet. God give us grace to hold to the central truth of this message. 
to proclaim it. In those times of struggle, we do what we need to do. We revisit that tomb. We remind ourselves, hey, He rose. That's not only real, but what's true because of that? What does it mean? And to remember, that was part of the plan. Jesus didn't go into panic mode. Simply fulfilling God's redemptive plan through His death and through His resurrection. And to report the truth. Let the gospel go by speaking it. And do what only the gospel can do by the power of the Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You took that gospel and You made it life to these hearts. I don't remember the first person I specifically heard the gospel message through. But very clearly, the time of a deep conviction of sin and my need of a Savior. Father, we thank You that You have given us this message and that You choose to primarily send it through such a foolish means as preaching to proclaim a foolish message, the message of the cross. So that all glory might be given to you. If there be any saved because of the message of the gospel, the message of the person, the work of Christ, it's because you've saved them. Because you have worked sovereignly and graciously in their heart. Oh, Father, help us embolden us to believe what we've experienced believe that the gospel proclaimed is the power of God unto salvation we pray this in Jesus name Amen